0: I uh, am hoping that we will see reflected in our offering all the money won on DraftKings or something from last week's prediction by some pastor in some church about the Super Bowl and who would win by three points. Um, I'll expect to see a real surge in giving over the next few weeks for that. We're in a series this morning on a great book of the Bible, the book of James. If you have a Bible with you, uh, please find the book of James. You will remember that James was written by Jesus' uh, little brother uh, who would eventually become the pastor of the first church in history, uh, the church in Jerusalem. And as we have seen throughout the series, the central thrust of James' book is that authentic Christianity is always visible uh, in a person's life. There's You know, not perfectly, of course. No one except Jesus does it perfectly. But there's no such thing as a faith that is just a mere mental assent to belief in the existence of God. There is often, or excuse me, there is always, often slowly but surely, an ongoing change in the way a person lives their life that is motivated, this change is motivated by love for people and love for Christ. Well, I want to start reading this morning from James chapter 3, uh, verse 13, in a moment. But first, let's invite the Lord to speak to us this morning from the book of James. Would you please pray with me? Our Lord Jesus Christ, uh, we come before you this morning knowing that we need to hear from you. We are so immersed In culture, we're so immersed in untruth that we need desperately to hear truth. We need a vision of reality. And Lord, give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Open our hearts by the power of your Spirit. Speak to us in a way um, that is personal to each of us, in a way that I cannot communicate to each person. Pray that your Spirit would take your truth and speak to people. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Let's read from James chapter 3, verse 13. James says, who is wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, don't boast about it or deny the truth. Such Uh, wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is earthly, uh, unspiritual, demonic. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, good fruit, impartial, and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace reap a harvest of righteousness. Now, you might have noticed it yourself as we were reading it through. Perhaps not, because this is your first time through. I've been reading it for uh, quite a while. But uh, the word that's repeated most in these verses is the Greek word sophia, which is translated wisdom. And it is used four times in these verses. Now, the thing is that wisdom is one of those words that when, we, uh, that when we use it, most of us sort of know what it means, but if we were asked to define it, our definition might be kind of fuzzy, so let's define specifically what the word wisdom means. Wisdom is knowing, here's, here's the definition of wisdom. Wisdom is knowing, understanding, and choosing uh, to live consistent with reality, so knowing Understanding and choosing to live consistent uh, with reality. And so you notice three aspects to wisdom. One is knowledge. Uh, Before I can live consistent with reality, I, I have to know what reality is. I have to learn that. I have to take in information about reality. Another aspect of wisdom is understanding. Because you can have all the knowledge in the world. You can have all the information in the world about reality. Uh, but not really understand it, can't you? When I was a kid in school, I, I hated word problems in math. Do you know why? Because I was a good memorizer. I could memorize facts and formulas and recite them, and I could, I, could, I could memorize it very easily. But word problems forced me to do more than no facts and formulas. What did they force me to do? They forced me to understand them, why they worked, and how and where to apply them. See? That's understanding. So there's knowledge, there's understanding, and that leads me to the third aspect of wisdom, which is choice. I might know something is true, I might understand why it's true, and yet still make choices that are inconsistent with what I know and understand about reality. For example, and many of you have heard me say this before, I know vegetables are good for me. I have a basic understanding of why and yet I still choose to avoid them as much as I can because I have the palate of a 9-year-old. I don't like vegetables. I know I understand, I don't I just don't choose, right? So all three of those are critical to this idea of wisdom, knowledge of reality, understanding of reality, and then the choice to live consistent with it. That's what wisdom is. Now, seems simple enough. But James is telling us in this passage, I don't know if you noticed this or not, but he's telling us there are two competing, we'll call them wisdoms for the moment. There are two competing views of reality in the world. One that is true, one that is false. And he says that Christ followers are constantly caught between these two competing views of reality that vie for our allegiance and that have profound implications for all of your relationships, for your friendships, uh, for your uh, dating relationships, for your marriage, if you're married, for your relationships uh, with your children, if you choose to have them or if you have them, uh, for your workplace, uh, your church, your city, your country. We're, We're caught between these two competing views of reality. And they're always vying for us, and they have severe implications, or profound, I should say, implications, for all of our relationships. I want to look at these two competing views of reality. Look at verse 14. James says, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth, such and notice the quotes. Wisdom does not come down from heaven, but is on earth. Excuse me, is earthly, unspiritual, uh, demonic. Now, uh, on the one hand, there's a wisdom that comes down from heaven. In other words, it's heavenly. It's it's based in true reality. But here's what's fascinating. In the Greek text, you can see that where James is headed is that if there's a wisdom that comes down from heaven that comes down from above, logically there must be a wisdom that also comes from below, comes up from below, except James doesn't actually use the word wisdom. The editors of the NIV have added the words wisdom in quotation marks, but James doesn't use the word because he won't even call it wisdom. He says there is a view of reality that comes from below that he describes as earthly Unspiritual, demonic, of the devil, it is unreality. See, so there's 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 a view of of there's a wisdom, there's a view of reality that comes down from above, and then there's an unreality, a view of reality that is unreality that comes up from below. And James says that there is this kind of earthbound wisdom which masquerades as true wisdom but in fact is based in unreality and its origin ultimately is Satan, the deceiver. So it is unspiritual. It doesn't recognize the existence of God or the ongoing need for God's rescue, resources and power in life. It is earthly. It is a kind kind of unreality that can't see beyond the horizons of human existence. It is boastful in that it denies the truth. And the tragedy is that the person who believes this is actually, from the Bible's point of view, very, very foolish. And you might be thinking to yourself, who are you calling a fool? Not me, I hope. you need to understand two things about yourself more clearly than you do. First, you need to understand that the human heart, which is the, the seat, sum, and center of who we are, the human heart is naturally drawn to unreality because it untethers us from any authority but ultimately the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. See, the human heart is naturally drawn to this false wisdom, this unreality, this unwisdom that comes from Satan. Because it untethers us from the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's based in the idea that there is no God to whom we are accountable. and You see, we're naturally attracted to this. This is why the Gospel says, that God has to give you a new heart. Your old heart wasn't even a fixer-upper. It was a complete tear-down. That's how bad it was. That's how susceptible it is to any view of reality that untethers us from the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ. Right? It was a tear-down. He had to give you a brand new heart. Now, here's the second thing that you need to understand of you, about yourself. We're unaware of the Unreality by which we live because we identify it so closely with reality. And I'll explain this in a minute, but let me me just say it again. We're unaware of the unreality by which we live because we identify it so closely with reality. In other words, we've never stopped to critically analyze what we think about reality. Until some outside force pointed us to it. Let me take a few moments to explain what I mean. First with an inconsequential example and then with one that is very consequential. Here's the inconsequential example. When Amy and I got married, I was absolutely stunned to learn that her idea of Christmas was completely different from my idea of Christmas morning. In my family, at the appointed time, the children would... Uh, run from the rooms to the Christmas tree where there would be a pile of presents and in a few brief moments of sheer unabashed greed and materialism, all the gifts would be opened at once, wrapping paper and bows flying everywhere. Now, I assumed this was standard. I assumed this was reality. I assumed this is how every family did, did it. I was stunned to learn it wasn't. In Amy's family, listen to this. In Amy's family, each child got three presents, one that you wanted, one that you needed, and one that Santa brought as a surprise. They were placed neatly on the fireplace, under your stocking. And on Christmas morning, everyone would wake up, gather together, and open their presents neatly. One present at a time, in order until they'd all been opened. One person was assigned the trash bag for wrapping paper and bows and someone holding a notebook recording what gifts were given, to whom, and by whom, so that thank you notes could be promptly sent. She was equally stunned to learn that my family did it any differently because that's all she had never known. And I tried to explain to her that it wasn't her fault that she was wrong about Christmas morning. (laughs) And that it was just a bad idea handed down to her over the years. And isn't she grateful that I'd come into her life to straighten her out? <laughs> but you could probably guess who won that battle. <laughs> now, that's a very consequential example of how we don't even recognize that what we believe, like we, we think that what we believe is reality because it's just what we have come to assume is reality. It's what we've been taught. Well, that is reality, of course. But it's not always so inconsequential. Let me give you a consequential example. Back in the 18th century, a transition took place in Western culture that was so dramatic that there's virtually no subject taught in high school or universities that has not been profoundly influenced by the ideas of this movement, and this movement was known as the Enlightenment. The Enlightenment was a a movement in which, in the Western world, the basic principles of God's revelation were laid aside, and man, not God, became the measure of all things. The dark ignorance, the blind belief of the past were wholesale rejected as the product of an uncritically accepted religion. And so man laid God aside and believed that man became the measure of all things. Now that transition was one that took place largely among intellectuals in great universities but over time it became all perver- pervasive. And in the words of the songs we listen to, in the movies that we watch, and the books we read, the wisdom, the wisdom, false wisdom, the unreality of the enlightenment, the ideas of the, unre- of the enlightenment pour forth. And you and I just accept that this wisdom is based in reality and we turn this into little wisdom sayings here's one here's one see if you recognize this one my body my choice here's another one you do you Here's another you can be whatever you put your mind to here's another I'm a self-made man. You hear those? Do you hear it? Those are the ideas of the enlightenment. The idea that says, there is no sovereign creator God to whom I am obligated. There are no absolute truths in life. And you see, this is false wisdom based in unreality that we uncritically accept because it is what our culture, this earthly, unspiritual, demonic culture teaches us from childhood up. Now, more recently, the Enlightenment has ushered in another school of thought that you have undoubtedly heard a great deal about and which also began among intellectuals in universities called critical theory. You heard about critical theory? There are a number of different forms of critical theory. There's critical race theory, critical gender theory, critical feminist theory, and more. But here's the essence of critical theory. Critical theory argues that what previous generations might have seen as as reality, certainly anything that the Bible says about reality, these are just simply socially constructed ideas that are enslaving and that are harmful to people. And critical theory says that we need to deconstruct all of these enslaving ideas along with any other authority over our lives. Critical theory is a product of the Reformation. It's about how we, or of the Enlightenment, and it is about how we untether ourselves from social norms, but ultimately how we untether ourselves from the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, these are just two examples of earthly wisdom that human beings are naturally attracted to, that come up from below, that are demonic in nature, and have become and are becoming so deeply ingrained that one might never even know that neither are really based in reality. Now look, James was writing before the Enlightenment in critical theory, but his point is... That there is a kind of earthly wisdom to which the human heart is naturally attracted because it masquerades as true, but it's not. It's unreality. And James gives us some characteristics of it. He says it's characterized by, well, look at it. He says it's characterized by bitter envy. Selfish ambition, of course it is. Because life, you see, where there is no God, life is a zero-sum game. More for you means less for me, and life is all about me, which is a view of reality also spawned by the enlightenment, known as, anyone know? Survival of the fittest. Winning is everything. Now, I want you to be careful because James isn't saying that ambition is wrong. There's a difference between good ambition and selfish ambition. And as you might expect, the difference between good ambition and selfish ambition is who it's for. Selfish ambition is all about me. This is what drives politics, It's is what drives media, it's what drive econo- drives economics. Uh, It even drives churches often. In fact, that's what launches this this whole section of the book of James. If you recall, James is speaking to people who are envious and selfishly ambitious and who want to climb the ladder of church to be pastors and teachers as quickly as they can. And as a result, they're teaching, they're saying, they're teaching false doctrine. But it wasn't so that they could serve people. It was so that they could serve themselves. So James says that kind of ambition that's all about me is wrong. But he, he isn't saying ambition itself is wrong. Ambition's good. You know, start companies, start churches, start families, but ambition must always be tethered to servanthood, not selfishness. A few weeks ago, over a hundred people responded to Vision Sunday uh, by signing up outside in City Square uh, to, to be a part of some of the ministries that we mentioned. Uh, uh, on that Sunday, combined with the hundreds who already serve here at City Church. Now, that's great. See, that's, 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 that's good ambition, but when ambition becomes about advancing you, you'll find yourself boasting about it, which is what we call in this culture virtue signaling. I have to make sure that you're aware of what I'm doing I have to make sure you're aware of how good I am, and so I virtue signal. And that, of course, is what drives cancel culture. Because if I virtue signal, I have to cancel anyone who isn't doing what I do because it's all about me. It's selfish ambition, you see. Notice what the results of earthly wisdom to which we are so naturally attracted are. Verse 18, for where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and every evil practice. Disorder, chaos. True or false? Our country has a chaos problem. True or false? Our country has a disorder problem. What would you say? True or false? Like major city streets are full of crime. Authorities recently announced they'd seized enough fentanyl to kill 100 million people in America. We can't, as a society, define what a woman is. And yet, at the same time, we are terribly concerned about the effect of the male patriarchy on women. Now, that's chaos. Uh, That's disorder. You can't, on the one hand, say there's no such thing as a woman, and yet we're very concerned about women. You can't do that. You can't, on the one hand, say that there are, uh, you know, that, that you can't define gender, that there's more than two genders, that a child doesn't know what their gender is until they decide what their gender is, and then also have gender reveal parties. You can't have a culture like that. Um... That's chaos. We scream at each other on social media. We cancel each other. We refuse to hear opposing views. We refuse to agree to disagree. We divorce each other. We use each other for sex. That's chaos. Who can keep a relationship going in that kind of culture? And you see, the view of reality advanced by the enlightenment and critical theory which it has ushered in is that if we could just free ourselves from antiquated and ridiculous notions of absolute truth and God and the need for man to be rescued from his sin, the world would be such a better place. That's the idea. That's the wisdom that comes up from below. But that's not what James says. What James says is that when a society rejects the gospel, it doesn't ascend into a kind of moral decency. It descends into paganism. The word he uses is vile. Every vile practice. He says, you know know what that is? You know what that phrase is, every vile practice? That's the junk drawer of human sins. Every vile practice. If we just feed our natural human instincts and give in to the gravitational pull of our desires that are instigated by the cultural forces around us, literally there is no end to our depravity. We descend into the pit. You know what we do? Here's what we do we say, that's not vile. That's not vile. That's diversity. That's not vile. That's an alternative lifestyle. There's no line, or if there is some line, we have the right to move the line. That's not sexual sin. That's living together. We're just trying to figure out if we're compatible sexually. That's not sin. I'm a victim. You're abused. You're oppressed. And on and on and on and on. And you see, all of this stuff naturally flows. From the human heart, they aren't even seeds that that need to be planted. Disorder and every vile thing are hardy perennials that grow up out of the old heart, yours and mine. It is earthly. It is unspiritual. It is demonic. This is all the stuff that Satan is about. It is unreality. The idea that there is no God, that human beings aren't sinners, that we don't need to be rescued, that we can make it on our own. These are all satanic ideas, unreality. It's not wisdom. And James says they'll destroy your relationships, your church, your culture. You've maybe heard me quote, those of you who've been here for some time, heard from the pastor and author Peter Skizzero. From his book, Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, he says this. He says, there is no greater disaster in the spiritual life than to be immersed in unreality. In fact, the true spiritual life is not an escape from reality, but an absolute commitment to it. Disorder, chaos, every vile practice. Well... Fortunately, James doesn't leave us there. He says there's hope. There's a solution. And it's the wisdom that comes down from above. The problem the problem is here, but the solution is there, above. Uh, there's, there's destruction and disorder and chaos here, but there's healing and order from above. And James talks now about true wisdom. Look at verse 17. But the wisdom... The real wisdom, the true wisdom, the the, uh, uh, reality comes from heaven. And it is, first of all, pure. And then he says, notice the effect on relationships. He says it's peace-loving. It's considerate. It is submissive to authority, all kinds of authority, but, of course, the authority of the lordship of Jesus Christ, full of mercy no cancel culture and good fruit impartial like willing to hear opposing ideas sincere not hypocritical not virtue signaling let me tell you about what a great person I am by how i virtue signal peacemakers so in peace, reap a harvest of righteousness. I'll say more about that next week. Earlier in the passage, James uh, describes the wisdom that comes from above. He says it results in, go back to verse 13. He says, who is wise and understanding among you, let them show it by their good life. You hear it again, this idea that there's no such thing as just mental agreement with the existence of God. It must be shown re authentic Christianity gets into people's day-to-day lives. And he says, let them show it by their good life. That, Greek, that word good is the Greek word kalos from which we get our word calligraphy. In other words, attractive lives, beautifully formed like like beautifully formed handwriting it's not so much the idea of being good and doing all the right things as much as it is the idea of being good in the way that Jesus was good of showing the attractiveness the beauty, the graciousness of a life lived by the resources of God's grace, do you remember? people, even people who are sinners wanted to hang out with Jesus how many people that are sinners really want to hang out with pastors? like how many people who are how many people sitting in churches really want to hang out with pastors because we have this we have this reputation of being self-righteous and judgmental but people wanted to hang out with Jesus and that's what he's describing here a life that is beautiful kalos calligraphy attractive beautiful okay. and then he says let him show it also by deeds again here we are deeds not just mental of scent, But it ought to be changing your life by deeds done in the humility that comes from real wisdom. And here again, the the, the central thrust of James' message is that authentic Christianity, as opposed to virtue signaling, is always seen in a transformed life by deeds done in the humility that comes from real wisdom, which starts with... Anyone remember what wisdom starts with? Proverbs 1.7, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Real wisdom begins with the idea and the understanding that reality is there is a God who created this whole thing, and that I'm obligated to that God. Authentic Christianity is manifested by deeds done in humility as opposed to the wisdom that comes up from hell, which is all about boasting about me. It is boastful in that it conveys a sense of how superior I am to you. I can't understand your problems and issues. I don't have those problems. There's no sense of I'll carry your burdens. It's, I'll judge you because I'm better than you. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps like I did. I'm a self-made man or woman, if you could define what a woman was. It doesn't align with the truth that there is a God who is in control and from whom I need mercy. And so in humility, I'll show the same mercy to you. You got your baggage, I got mine. Because we're both sinners. This is a kind of wisdom that results in peace, the wisdom from above, not division and destruction and chaos. It is considerate, open to reason, not refusing to befriend or listen to opposing points of view. It doesn't go out on social media and scream at people. It is submissive to authority, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial. It's not racist. It's not bigoted. It is not misogynistic. And there might be a couple of sentiments that you have in response to all that I've said here. One might be, well, what does all this have to do with me? And I would ask you, what wisdom, what views of reality have you learned from human culture that have permeated your relationships and that are ultimately if you persist, will destroy your relationships. Your marriage, for example. Like here's one that I often see in marriages. It's this little piece of wisdom. When at all costs, I've been guilty of that. I'm going to win this argument between Amy and I no matter what I have to say to win it. That'll destroy a marriage. Here's another one. This will destroy a marriage. I am who I am. I can't change. Don't ask me to. That'll destroy a marriage. Here's another. I've seen it affect marriages, I've seen it affect families, companies, churches. And it's this one. Uh, In order to lead, I must control. See, that's a little wisdom. That comes from below, that I can control people. In order to lead, I must control, but there's a difference between influence and control. And I would just ask you, where did you get those ideas? That you must win at all costs, that to lead, you must control. That you are who you are and that you cannot change. Where in the world did you get those ideas? They didn't come from above. They come from below. And they bring disorder, chaos, and the junk drawer. Every vile thing. You need wisdom from above. And that means... That you have to be in and be learning from this book. Now, uh, I was... See, this is wisdom from above, this book. It's not what you get naturally in life. This is wisdom from above. Now, I was talking to my 242 group the other night, and we were talking about reading the Bible. And I know that it is... uh, It's very difficult to sit down. You sit down with this thing some morning, and you go, well, where where do I start? Where do I read? And, you know, there's a story about a guy who decided, well, I, you know what, I'm just going to open up the Bible and, and, you know, whatever it says, I'll, I'll, I'll assume that speaks to me and I'll think about that. And so he opens up the Bible and he, and he reads this passage that talks about this guy that hung himself. And he's like, well, that, that I don't want to apply that one. So, he, so he, he flips over and he just opens the Bible up randomly again and he goes, and he reads this Bible, or he reads this passage and it says, now go and do likewise. And... You know, he's like, this is not what I want. And see, this is what happens a lot. We sit down and we, we open the Bible and we go, where in the world am I supposed to, to read? And then if you do figure out where you're supposed to read, you're like, what did that mean? I don't have any idea what that means. Or some of you, some of you read through the Bible, you, you decide, I'm going to read through the Bible in a year. My question is always, what's so magical about a year? And then the other thing is, how many of you really make it through February? Because it's about there that you get into Leviticus, and everybody quits in Leviticus. <laughs> so I would like to make a suggestion to you this morning, speaking about needing wisdom from above. Here's a suggestion. Why don't you take the passage that, of Scripture that I or whoever is speaking on, and read that passage the week after that we speak on it in your devotional time. So like you would take James 3, verses 13 through 18 this next week. Read it. Pray over it. Study it. Look at it. Memorize parts of it if you would like to. See, if you do that, it gives you direction about what to read. You'll have an idea about what it means before you go into it so that you won't just be looking at it going, what in the world does that mean? And you'll be surprised by the things that you discover that I didn't even mention. Because in 35 minutes, I'm telling you, I can't hit everything in this passage. It's a great way to just start reading the Bible. Just take, like, don't try to make it so complicated. Just go into the passage that I just preached. Make sure you take notes on Sunday morning. And then go into the passage. That way you have some idea about what to read. Do that. It's a great way to get Scripture in. And if you don't like what I'm preaching on, go back to another series I've done on our website or find some other preacher. It doesn't have to be just me. You need wisdom from above. You need to get it into your life. You might be surprised by how many things you have learned to live by that are unreality and that are or have reaped destruction in your life. I should also say this, that if you recall, James begins this passage by telling people, excuse me, he begins James, the book of James, by telling people who are suffering, he says, you know, suffering produces uh, perseverance, and perseverance ultimately produces wisdom. And see, suffering doesn't, it's not just in the form of knowledge. Yes, you need knowledge. Yes, you need to understand reality. But sometimes wisdom comes through suffering. And so we don't go looking for suffering. But when it comes, we understand that suffering introduces us to reality. The idea of he, she lived happily ever after, that's not true. And suffering reminds us of that. Reminds us of our need for Christ, our need for God's resources. Suffering. Now, if if that's not the sentiment you have, that, Jeff, what does this have to do with me, then you might be thinking this. Well, Jeff, this has certainly been encouraging this morning, hearing about all these terrible things, uh, about my old heart and about humanity. But you need to understand this. You and I don't need to be afraid to look in the mirror of James 3. God puts this mirror in front of us because he loves us. He wants to rescue us out of the claustrophobic confines of the false wisdom that we have absorbed from our culture so that we can learn to live in the glory and the beauty of his kingdom and his goodness and grace. And, you know, I'll just close with this. God's wisdom did come down from heaven, literally, in the person of Jesus Christ. And you see God's wisdom most clearly on the cross. And if you can learn to boast in the cross, you'll have this wisdom that comes down from above that says, yes, I'm a sinner, but God loves me so much that he has entered into my brokenness. He died on the cross and was raised again so that my old heart could be torn apart and done away with, and I could receive a new heart so that I can be chained. And if you learn to boast in the cross, you'll become wise. That's the wisdom that has come down from heaven above. And that leads to this beautiful, humble, peacemaking, relationship-building life. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray. We so need to hear this passage of Scripture. We um, sort of blanch at what it reveals about us, but uh, we need to hear it nonetheless. And we thank you that in your mercy, in your desire to free us from the disorder and the chaos of the wisdom, the, the unreality, the false wisdom that comes from below, in your mercy, you want to free us from that, and we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. We thank you that you, the wisdom of God, came down from heaven above to free us from ourselves. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ. And if there's somebody here today who doesn't understand that they're a sinner who needs a savior, Lord, would you? It doesn't need a savior; it needs the savior, the only savior. Would you bring them to a point this morning where they recognize down deep in their hearts that they need the Lord Jesus Christ and that they would bow before the cross and say, I need you to be my Savior. Uh, Give me a new heart. And we thank you for your mercy. And it is in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you.